I think the number one thing is, is that you are the owner of, you know, your image, your likeness, you are the owner of things you're creating. So when leveraging AI, you know, solutions, make sure you do it in a way that is thoughtful and you don't give away certain rights that you already own to these AI solution companies. Uh, you don't compromise your art or, or your creativity by utilizing certain components from these AI solution companies in your final products. Uh, and if you do so, you do so informed that you understand the risks of that. And then more than anything, when you know, you're know you dealing with these larger entities, larger companies, uh, you understand that you, you own your image, you own your likeness, and uh, it is okay to you know, review these contracts and, and ask questions and ask for revisions um, when it comes to the license that you're providing to your image and likeness. Uh, and you know the worst they can say is no, but it's important to, I think, review it, to understand it, uh, and to go into things with your eyes wide open. Uh, you know, legal counsel, I think, is the best way to, to go about that. But I, you know, like I said, I understand that there are barriers to that and uh, making sure that you can try to find resources or do your best to ask questions when, you know, of these companies and things along those lines is a really important thing to do. Uh, and I think would, you know, save you heartache in the long run. Derek L. Maltzby Jr. is a senior associate attorney at Frost Brown Todd, where he is a member of the Data Digital Assets and Privacy Corporate and Intellectual Property Practice Groups and is one of the few black male attorneys working in this space in the country. He specifically helps coordinate the firm's efforts on artificial intelligence, digital assets, and Web3. Derek has been invited to speak on various topics at the intersection of the law and technology at conferences and universities across the country. Derek is also committed to creating a more equitable and inclusive environment within his law firm by serving on the firm's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. In addition to being on the Regional Advisory Board of Venture for America, Derek also serves on several community boards, including his role as Vice President of the Duquesne Black Alumni Network Board. In 2021, Derek was named a trailblazer in the law by the American Lawyer magazine, and during the summer of 2022, he was named a lawyer on the fast track by the Legal Intelligencer. Most recently, Derek was named a 2023 Rising Star by Super Lawyers and a 2023 Best Lawyers Ones to Watch in America. I had the great pleasure of meeting Derek at Black Tech Week here in Cincinnati this year and couldn't be more excited to have him on the show to discuss all things AI and the law. In today's episode, you'll learn about the current legal landscape around generative AI. While nothing discussed is legal advice, both creatives and business leaders alike will discover some tips on how to be empowered to protect your IP and leverage artificial intelligence with an ethical approach to grow your brands and businesses. Discover why Derek looks to consumer privacy and our European friends for regulatory framework parallels. What we've learned from the Zaria of the Dawn opinion on the ability to copyright your AI art, how creatives can protect their IP, including actors when it comes to scanning their likeness, and how to stay ahead of the law in this fast-paced landscape. Enjoy. But have you ever thought, what if this is all just a dream? Welcome to Creativity Squared. Discover how creatives are collaborating with artificial intelligence in your inbox, on YouTube, and on your preferred podcast platform. Hi, I'm Helen Todd, your host, and I'm so excited to have you join the weekly conversations I'm having with amazing pioneers in the space. 
The intention of these conversations is to ignite our collective imagination at the intersection of AI and creativity to envision a world where artists thrive. Derek, it is so good to have you on the show. Welcome to Creativity Squared. Thank you for having me, Helen. It's, uh, it's good to see you again. Yeah, Derek and I actually met at Black Tech Week here in Cincinnati. Seems like it was yesterday, but it was a couple of weeks ago. You know, what is time these days anyway? Yeah, completely agree. Um, and I mean, what a what an incredible conference that was, and uh, it was it was awesome to get to get to meet you while I was there. Yeah, I'm already looking forward to to next year. Um, well, and I think one thing uh, I'm super excited. You're f- the first attorney that we're having on the show, and when it comes to all things AI and legal, uh, it's a exciting time to say the least. Uh, and I think one thing that you want to make sure to say out the gate that uh, this is not legal advice. So uh, if if you want to say that specifically in your own legal yeah. terminology, I'll let you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, conversation today is, is purely for, for informational and, and entertainment purposes. You know, nothing is uh, to be construed or taken as legal advice. And you know, before you do anything, you should consult a lawyer um, and, and engage a lawyer to, to advise you in, in your business plan and what you're doing. And you should not cite to this podcast and to what I said on this podcast as, you know, your your legal reasoning for doing something. And chat GPT for that matter, which we'll get into. <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> it's, it's really funny because, uh, and this is maybe a great way to kick the show off, um, there was recently a, a lawyer who uh, relied upon ChatGPT to draft a brief that he then submitted to the court. And um, the ChatGPT made up law to support its argument that didn't actually exist. So when the court was checking the case law citations, they realized that they were they were fictional. They were, they did not exist. And so that lawyer um, law license, you know, has been suspended um, and, you know, it's pen, you know, pending investigation and, and all those types of things. So it, it's, it's so interesting. And in don't rely on legal advice given by ChatGPT uh, either as, is, is exactly it. In conversations, because, you know, I talk about my podcast a lot, uh, even people who are somewhat well-versed in ChatGPT don't realize that it hallucinates. And I think that's just something that, you know, if you aren't aware of that hallucination is a term where ChatGPT makes up stuff because it's trained to give you what you want. It's a prediction model. And sometimes of what it thinks that you want might not be based in reality. Um, so we have a great um, article on uh, creativitysquare.com that really outlines what hallucination is. But yes, everything that it spews out, any of these uh, generative AI chatbots uh, do not take for uh, do not take it as 100% real. And I think this also opens up something interesting um, from an earlier discussion that we were saying is the terms of service and the burden of this. So can you talk a little bit about OpenAI's uh, terms of service and what that means in relation to um, the, I guess, the the authenticity or the legal aspects yeah, of what yeah, it generates. And I, and, and I think it could be really cool um, to like even have like a, a series of you know, podcasts, maybe this is something I need to put together that just pulls up different terms of service for all the different, you know, generative AI and, and, and AI solutions and just pick through them 
and just read them like line by line uh, and picking out all the all the problematic things or or you know uh, dissecting them a little bit. That that could be a lot of fun. Put that on my big board of things to do. But uh, speaking of OpenAI specifically, because we don't have time to go through all of them. Um, one of the things that they really point out and, and a theme throughout their terms of use is that, you know, they are not standing by the accuracy of any of the output that, you know, you're provided um, from whatever your input is. And so what that means is that they openly are saying that this is information that could be inaccurate and it's your job to verify its accuracy. So the burden is pushed back on you to ensure that, you know, anything that it, you, you utilize in that output, you verified it to, to make sure it's accurate and true. Uh, beyond that, when you're talking about the input, which is, you know, sort of your, your, your prompt that you're going to place into, um, into the solution, they also are giving themselves a license uh, to be able to train their algorithm. And a piece of that is, is that because your, your input and others' input is training the algorithm and, you know, OpenAI is give, being given a license to that input, that means that the output is is influenced by others' input as well. And so another thing that they are, you know, uh, they openly say is it's up to you to ensure that you're not infringing on any third-party uh, intellectual property by utilizing the output in a commercial uh, or, or, or other business context. Um, and so, and they say that because they know Going back to, you know, the hallucinations problem, uh, similarly, they are at times just taking uh, others, you know, uh, intellectual property and uh, giving that as the output, right, as a, as a major uh, point of the output. And, you know, there are arguments of, well, is it, is it, is it intellectual property infringement if uh, the person put the input uh, in there in the first place? which then gave the license to open AI and then, you know, was, it was able to be used as output and now is being given to me, you know, and that, that there's like a whole argument there uh, until we understand, you know, how the, how the courts and, and how everything will play out in that realm. Uh, we won't really know what that argument will lead to. So for now it's, it's, it's safe to say, you know, you shouldn't be utilizing, um, you know, chat GPT or, or some other generative AI solutions in a manner commercially that you're relying upon the output as sort of your main uh, component of, of, of your, the product that you're commercializing. Thank you. And we'll, we'll come back to that because I think that opens up, you know, a whole can of worms uh, and a lot of different cases that are, are open right now when it comes to these tools. Uh, but taking a step back, you know, something that you had said uh, the other day is kind of how you're thinking about it from more of like a high level and looking to some of the, the privacy laws. So could you um, kind of walk us through your thought press process on that and kind of how that um, how you're thinking about it and how it applies uh, to the possible outcomes of these generative AI cases? Yeah, so my background, uh, I initially started out as a data privacy attorney, data privacy professional. And it was at sort of the uh, renaissance of consumer privacy when the, you know, the general data protection regulation, uh, GDPR for short, was being passed into law and enacted in the European Union. And uh, a thing about the GDPR was that it was, it was extraterritorial in scope, which means it didn't uh, matter 
where you were as a business, the consumer carried the law in their pocket. And that's why it was so, um, it was, it was, it was such a phenomenon because, you know, you had folks in the U S that interact with EU consumers that were concerned, obviously, if they, if the, if the law was applicable to them. And, you know, we, we know now there's, there's a sliding scale of, of, of risk when it comes to that, uh, when it comes to that law, but what you saw that what you know the GDPR do was it, it inspired then domestic uh, privacy laws here in the United States, uh, and what we've seen is a state by state approach, um, sort of a patchwork system where each state has their own consumer privacy law. I, I believe that similarly, uh, you know, generative AI and, and, and also AI is going to have a very similar uh, approach in which. We may see the EU take lead, right? Uh, I don't know. You know, recently they've they've provided some guidance uh, in the EU AI Act, which has been drafted um, and is you know under review and, and looking to be you know passed and enacted. Um, that you know talks about the risks uh, uh, associated with AI and different types of AI, right? Um, because you know AI and different uh, different functions pre- present different risks, which will then you know. Uh, present different regulatory structures, frameworks, and, and requirements. And then you look at generative AI and the importance of transparency, right? So they have transparency requirements around generative AI. And, you know, you need to disclose to a consumer that they're interact, that what you, that what they're viewing is gener- is, was generated by AI, um, or what they're reading was generated by AI, things like that. And so the, the, I think the EU AI Act is going to be something that sets a great framework similar to what the General Data Protection Regulation did. And then you'll it'll allow, you know, sort of a copycat mentality here in the US as different states decide to take action and, and, and put laws in place when it comes to uh, you know, businesses' use of artificial intelligence and in a consumer protection standpoint. Uh, you know, we I believe we talked about this before. The state of New York has already um, you know, passed laws about uh, you know u- utilizing artificial intelligence in employment decisions, um, and and you know a prohibition against that. Right, you can't uh, make an employment decision based on uh, you know artificial uh, an artificial intelligence solution, um, which you know is to stop uh, bias uh, from AI being you know involved in in hiring um, in, in in other employment functions. So. You're already starting to see that state by state patchwork, and it's only going to, I think, increase as the EU sort of lays out um, the the their their framework. Um, so I, I, I'm excited to watch it. I, I think the similarities are there, not from a not from a law standpoint, but more from I think political um, and sort of a structural uh, standpoint, and, and and sort of just how um, the the chips the chips will, will, will fall. Yeah, thank you for for explaining that. Thank you to our EU friends for for leading the way. <laughs> hey, hey. We appreciate you. <laughs> they, they, continue, they continue to do it. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of just seems, you know, like the law is always slow and behind, especially at how fast this technology is moving. Um, and and we'll dive into some of the, the cases now, but I would encourage all of our listeners and viewers, there's already so many great AI frameworks of how to, you know, have best in class ethical approach, like, you know, follow the frameworks or create your own framework uh, that's as ethical and moral as possible. Um, 
uh, and don't wait for the law because it's going to be behind. Well, and I I think that's, I think that's great advice because ultimately when you look at, and I use privacy just because it's sort of, it's sort of far enough along that we have case law, we have the regulations out there and we have all this stuff that for, for folks like myself to digest and what at the, at the center of everything that has come out over with privacy, consumer, you know, consumer privacy over the last 10 years, the, key point in all of it is transparency, right? It's transparency, it's ethics, and it's giving a consumer the ownership over their data. And so when you're analyzing where will, where will regular, you know, regulation around artificial intelligence go, it's, it's similar, right? It's, it's focusing on transparency. It's focusing on, you know, uh, are, are we respecting our consumers or are we trying to fool them? Right. If you're, if any piece of your business model is trying to fool somebody into believing that, you know, some level of AI is uh, creating some level of human element, right? Uh, then you're probably going to have a business model that needs to change when regulations do finally come around, um, you know, generative AI and, and other artificial intelligence solutions. And I'll put links into the episode blog post because we do have links to some ethical frameworks already on, on the website too. So let's dive into some of the different ways to think about it because you kind of mentioned the um, the business approach of how to think about it. And then, you know, our show is also about how creatives are collaborating with artificial intelligence. And, uh, you know, I think there's uh, a couple of different ways to look at it and um, different cases open now. So since you mentioned um, business use cases already, maybe we can start there and how businesses, sh- well, one, they should have their own AI policy, but kind of walk us through how businesses should be thinking about artificial intelligence with their companies right now. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's super important to, to, to be ready to adopt and understand that, you know, your employees or, you know, your, your, your colleagues will be uh, engaging with these AI solutions one way or another, whether it's in their personal life or, you know, at, at work. And what I've seen a lot of companies do and what we've helped companies, you know, navigate is what, what is an acceptable AI usage policy? Uh, and, and how do we get out in front of, uh, you know, how our employees interact with artificial intelligence rather than wait for something to go wrong and then be reactive. And so, you know, I, I obviously as a lawyer love a proactive approach and, and love analyzing these issues ahead of time. And so one of the, one of the things that, you know, you put in place is that, that AI, you know, usage policy. And, and in that you set sort of the parameters for what's appropriate. Uh, and one of the huge things is obviously, and, and Helen, you, you said this yet, uh, yesterday or, or, or last week or whenever we talked, um, it was do not put confidential information or you know proprietary information into these solutions right because no matter what you are you know helping train these solutions and you know the i do believe that there are ai solutions that are obviously starting to account for that and they are entering into b2b licenses and creating sort of closed circuit uh systems that, you know, don't take any of that confidential information or, or IP uh, out of, you know, that, that, that license out of that company. And it sort of just circulates around, but even then, you know, I still believe you, you want to be as uh, careful as possible. Right. And uh, 
when you're ha- when you do have employees that you know want to go on and use ChatGPT or do something from an efficiency standpoint, and you're a company that wants to embrace that technology. Uh, really setting forth for them what's appropriate, what's not appropriate is important. And then also making sure that they know when something does go wrong or if they know of a colleague that is doing something, the steps and procedures in reporting that uh, and, and working through that. And so put together, honestly, a, a few now. Um, and it, it, it is amazing to watch companies be proactive and thinking about that. But naturally, you'll have folks that, you know, will be have to be reactive because they won't have thought that far ahead and something bad will happen. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll cross those bridges when we get there, but you know, from a business standpoint, I think it's always trying to leverage these solutions in a manner that is, you know, creating efficiency and helping you, um, you know, in your job title some way or another, but not relying upon it to provide the solution that you're then providing, uh, you know, to your customer, to your client, um, and obviously not you know, giving the secret sauce over to this third party um, who, you know, more than likely is gaining some level of a license to that uh, information to then train their algorithm. Yeah. And then let's also talk about the, the liability issues with using the output from a commercialization standpoint, because I know within, you know, the advertising circles that I've been in, a lot of it's a lot of big brands are asking, you know, can we even use generative AI in final TV commercials, print ads, social media, and it's kind of like, no, don't do that. Uh, it seems like the the advice is more using use it upstream and like the the brainstorming, the storyboards, but not in the final products. Um, and you're shaking your head for those who are just listening to the audio. So can you kind of like walk us through your thought process on an advice around uh, around this idea as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, so going back to the open AI example, for instance, just because that's the one we've talked about and is very specific. Uh, one of the things in the open AI terms that it states very clearly is that, you know, they do not verify that the output uh, they, is owned by them, right? They, they're not, they say that they do not own uh, the output and it is up to you to ensure that by utilizing the output, you are not, uh, infringing upon a third party's intellectual property rights. And so, you know, all of that output is coming from somewhere uh, on the internet. And at the end of the day, it is, there are, there are elements of the output that could be uh, an element of somebody's protected, um, you know, intellectual property, whether that be, you know, a trademark, a copyright and, or even, um, you know, some other state uh, common law, you know, IP right. And so because of that, you, you, you have to verify and be sure that you're not, you know, infringing upon somebody else's rights when you're utilizing um, that output from one of these generative AI solutions uh, in a commercial context. So to your point, Helen, it's, it's, Definitely smart to use it for more internal purposes that helps you and, and give and, you know is an efficiency purpose uh, to get to your final solution rather than taking that output and utilizing it as the direct final solution. There's a ton of risk in doing that, and I think that's where 
to go to our, I think our next point, that's where the, the conversation I think is really key for cr- creatives um, in ensuring that creatives understand that when it comes to, uh, you know, copyright and, and trademark that they you know, may not be able to gain certain rights if they're utilizing too much um, output from, uh, you know, a source like ChatGPT or Dolly or something along those lines, because, you know, AI is not a human uh, element and, you know, certain traditional IP protections um, require a human element. Yeah, I, I will say I will point out two companies where if you use their generative um text to image tool that does fall under, I think, um, legal use and, and is safe and that Shutterstock. And when Adobe's Firefly comes out of beta, right now it's in beta, um, but both of these companies are kind of leading the way when it comes to ethical use to generative AI. And if you haven't listened to the episode with Adobe's head of uh, the Content Authenticity Initiative def- uh, on the show, definitely recommend that. But both of these, the artists and photographers for their stock services uh, had the option to opt out. Their licensing says that their images can be used in these generative AI tools and um, they will get compensations. Uh, Shutterstock's already currently doing compensation and Adobe's Firefly, um, the company told me once it comes out of beta, there will be a compensation model. So those are the only two companies that I know of offhand. There might be a few more out there, um, but if they're not those two companies with that licensing in place, uh, it's really kind of you know, uh, the wild, wild west in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the important part, right? Is, is they are getting the appropriate licenses from the source in which the AI then would, would, you know, scrape and, uh, you know, configure the output. Right. And that is the important piece of that. And some of these, uh, open source generative AI solutions, they don't have the ability to obviously do that. Right. Uh, and so I, I think, Helen, you, you hit it on the head. Like that's the future of some of these products, right? And, and where they all, I think, would probably like to go. Because if you can, you know, sell these licenses to use their product and they can ensure you that you're able to commercialize the output, then that puts them, I think, in a strategic position to really, you know, have success within the market. So, um, and that, it just goes back to the important point of, you know, have your lawyer, uh, have, you know, your your team really dig into the terms of service and the terms of use uh, for these products and these solutions that you're utilizing to understand what your rights are, but then also understand what the rights that you're giving uh, over to these entities, because, you know, they do vary and they do change over time. So what's true on Monday might not be true on Friday. There's so many different ways that we can go because uh, I know that there's so many cases right now um, of these companies getting sued uh, by artists and authors and all this. But you had mentioned, um, actually, from a creative standpoint, what can be uh, copyright or not. Um, so uh, why don't we start there and then uh, we'll go into some of the other cases that are open right now. Uh uh, because there is, there are some artists that are trying to get their uh, generative AI artworks copyright or even prompts copyright. So, kind of walk us through um, the big case and where things stand, and how our artists and creative listeners should be thinking about this too. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, I think the big case, and most people listening to this probably have heard this in some way or another uh, at this point, is the sort of Zarya of the Dawn. 
copy, you know, copyright, uh, USPTO decision. Um, and that case is interesting just because it was a comic book, right. Created by a, a New York, uh, artist and author, um, and utilized all images uh, that were created by generative AI. And so when going to look for protection, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the authorities looked at sort of what human element it exists, right? So the, the current stance right now is it's a, it's a case by case analysis, which is, which is great, right? I, I think that shows that um, the, you know, authorities, uh, that, that be, you know, the, the USPTO and, and, and the copyright office, they understand that you need, uh, to analyze the facts of the usage of generative AI in each case to really know what human element existed, um, in the final product. And so in that case, the human element was the way that the images were placed and, and, and how they were organized and then the text, uh, which the author did create the text. Uh, and so though the, the way the images were organized in the text were, were protectable, um, and, but the images themselves were not. And so I think that that's just you know, kind of a, a great roadmap for where we are now and, and where, where we'll go when you talk about the human element aspect of things. Um, and I believe that it will change over time considering that they're going to take this case by case analysis. And because these solutions are evolving and things are, you know, to your point, Helen, you have uh, solutions that are actually giving certain licenses and ownership and, and, and different things like that. Then I think you will start to see potentially more uh, human element being able to be fought for in those uh, applications for protection which will impact the decisions. And I know like some uh, of the prompts are, have secret sauce already of, you know, the very in depth to get the outputs that people are wanting. And right now prompts are not uh, able to be uh, protected. Um, but there is a difference between copyright and trade secret that might be applicable here. So can you kind of walk us through the difference or how people should be thinking about their, their special prompts that they've been using? Yeah. So, you know, copyright is, is obviously something you file. And I guess I'll, I'll go on record here and say, like, I'm not a traditional IP attorney. Um, I, I work with intellectual property. I work around intellectual property protection, but I don't file patents. I don't file trademarks. I don't file copyrights. Um, our, our folks in our, you know, IP department in our firm, they do that work. I work alongside them. Um, so I know, I know enough to be dangerous, but you know, that this is an area where the, the details, uh, are, are, are beyond me. Um, but the, uh, Big thing here is, you know, a copyright. That's, that's something you file for, right? That is a, that is a protection that is, is given to you. Whereas a trade secret is actually more, uh, of, of a common law, right? And so it's, it's a practice and it's, it's something that you do, um, more so than something that you file. And so uh, one of my favorite sort of trade secrets, uh, is the Coca-Cola recipe, which is in a vault. 
somewhere. Um, and you know, they have kept that a trade secret that nobody knows. And because they've never had to file it, um, it's never had to be uh, public. So nobody, nobody knows what the recipe is. And if you can keep something private uh, and you can sort of keep it a trade secret, right? Uh, you might not, you might not meet all the elements of a trade secret under common law, depending on what state you're in, but it's a practice that can be, you know, utilized to try to keep something as private as possible. Uh, and so, you know, elements of trying to keep something a trade secret is compartmentalization. So not allowing um, people to know every aspect of, of, of your secret, um, you know, under lock and key, right? So a vault, uh, a safe, um, you know, if you want to go to blockchain, right? You can you can get into that. Like there's there's ways you can keep that uh, you know locked and secure, and the list goes on and on of different elements of of, of keeping something you know a, a secret. How many people know things along those lines? So it is something that we talked about with prompts because with prompts you obviously can start to realize certain prompts will get you certain outcomes. And if you want to recreate those outcomes, you know, keeping those prompts uh, a secret and, and, you know, keeping them uh, with to people with limited, uh, you know, limited amount of knowledge and uh, being able to sort of keep it under lock and key and however you want to go about doing that uh, is something that you can do and explore considering that the more traditional protections are not afforded to you at this time. I always love a good disclaimer <laughs> so, yeah, at the beginning about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so hard, right? Because I'm, I'm in our intellectual property practice group because I, I do work, um, you know, with confidentiality agreements and, and IP assignments and, you know, bigger and broader IP protections within a company um, and for creatives, you know, with name, image and likeness and, and all that kind of stuff and, and contracts. But I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a patent uh, bar. I'm not a patent bar. Right. So I don't, I don't, I'm not, a, you know, I can't file a patent. I can't file a trademark. Like all the, I don't do any of those things. So it's, um, it, it's legal. It's, it's in the legal world. It makes sense. But I always realize like when somebody says, Oh, well, you're in the little property practice. So like, how are you not an intellectual property attorney? And it, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things where I think uh, our industry jargon is so confusing and uh, you know, we can go into a whole, whole rant about the archaic, systems of the legal world. <laughs> well, I feel like this is actually a good segue because you've mentioned, you know, the artists that you work with, uh, name and likeness. And on the on the flip side of, you know, protecting artists AI work or any artwork is actually protecting the artists from being scraped and how their likeness is being used. And there's a lot of um, suits right now where you have uh, the the latest one I just saw is like the New York Times is suing OpenAI for uh, scraping their articles uh, without permission and without licensing. Um, you have the you know writer strike and the actor strike, and one of the fears right now with the actors is, um, especially background actors, is having their likeness scanned and then handing over all of the rights to where they could be used without compensation and and all of this stuff. So let's let's kind of talk uh, a little bit on the side of um, how you're thinking about these uh, things um, and then kind of how our creatives can can navigate this uh, right now in this moment in time. 
Yeah, it's it's so hard because it's it's ongoing, right? It's evolving. Um, we don't have a lot of definitive uh, case law and opinions that give us the the, the framework and the guidance for exactly what thing what the answers are. Um, you know, you talk about the New York Times uh, case, and I'm sure an argument is for you know public record and, and things along those lines. I haven't dug too deep into the case, but you know, the outcome of that case and the out and, and the opinions uh, will dictate what the whole industry does moving forward. Right. Um, and folks, to your point, when you think build your framework as ethically as possible and you'll be in a great position, well, guess who's not worried about, uh, this, this scraping case is Shutterstock because Shutterstock's business model, uh, is, you know, focused on actually already doing it in a way that makes sure that the license is appropriate and that anybody who doesn't want, uh, sort of their images, uh, in, in you know, text scraped, can opt out, right? So that's that's I think just a conversation in itself in terms of positioning and watching what happens and then adjusting your business model depending. As far as you know, the the cloning and in 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 AI scans and stuff like that, it is fascinating. And you have um, you know actors coming out and, and saying that they've been scanned and you know their image and likeness is now being utilized uh, in the background of different films and things like that, that they are not, that they you know did not appear uh, in via like a traditional sense. And so one of the important things there is, is, you know, and, and we don't know sitting on this call is like, what did the con, what did your contract say? Um, and, you know, I think what we do know is that I'm, I'm, I'm positive that uh, the, the old agreement that the union uh, negotiated likely did not contemplate for artificial intelligence, um, metaverse, uh, you know, the ability to scan and clone, um, you know, digital, digitally and, and things like that. So I think it is something that we need to continue to monitor and watch, but I urge all creatives, um, you know, I, I represent influencers, artists, um, and all types of different creatives, uh, studios and things like that. And one of the places we spend the most time on is uh, the the license to somebody's Im image and likeness, right? There are very broad default terms that are placed um, in these agreements, um, whether it's a you know influencer agreement, um, you know, an endorsement agreement, wh whatever it may be, in which these companies are trying to take, you know, uh, the ability to utilize a specific person's likeness and in, in, in perpetuity for, you know, almost any reason they see fit, right? And so when, if, if you agree to that language, does scanning you and utilizing your image, you know, via, uh, you know, a, a digital version of yourself, you know, did that fall contractually within that? Maybe, right? And, and, and that would be their argument. Oh, well, you licensed this over to us. We were allowed to do this. Uh, and your argument would be like, that was not the contemplation and uh, meeting of the minds that we were having in that moment. So, you know, to avoid that argument, you obviously want to then, you know, limit that license as much as possible and account for these things. And I think right now, as creatives, um, you understand the risks and you understand the possibilities that are out there. And so, you know, empowering yourself um, to, to look at those agreements, uh, I think is really, really important. But I also know, and we, Helen, we talked about this. That there's also a leverage um, aspect here, and there's a there's there's a you know a place where these companies they obviously have the ability to get 
big law firms to look over uh, their documentation and to draft these documents and everything like that. And you as a creative may not have the same you know, financial resources to be able to engage your own lawyers and to be able to have them spend the time to redline and negotiate out each agreement. And then there's ultimately the leverage point of, are you able to walk away from this agreement if it's unfair? And, you know, at times creatives are in a position where they need the paycheck uh, to pay their bills and support their families and to support themselves. And if you can't, you know, go into something with the leverage to be able to say, well, this is a, this is a non-negotiable for me uh, or I'm walking, then that also, that also kind of puts you at a disadvantage. And so it, I, I give this advice um, also keeping in mind the reality, which is that's not always possible. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of underscores the importance of the union too, and collectively leveraging the the collective um, group in, in these negotiations and how important just following what's happening with actors and writer strikes are, because that's, you know, when it comes to leveraging power and stuff, that's, you know, from a collective bargaining standpoint, that's really important. Yeah, I agree. And um, I'm going to get the state, I'm going to get the state wrong. Um, I think it's Illinois. I think it's Illinois. Um, you know, just pa- just passed a law that protects uh, ch- children, um, entertainers, influencers who, you know, obviously are not able to give consent uh, to you know being utilized in certain ways to, to have profits. And so, I also think what we're going to start seeing is is it, you know influencers, uh, reality television, um, you know, others that aren't necessarily within these unions also start to realize that, you know, their, their likeness and, and their rights are being sort of compromised in a predatory sense because, you know, they haven't been afforded uh, the same, the same protections uh, of a union. And so, you know, right now um, the love is blind cast uh, from previous seasons, um, you know, is, is suing Netflix um, for, you know, harsh, working conditions and things along those lines and influencers, I think are going to start, you start seeing states protecting minority, uh, not minority, minor, minor influencers. Um, and I, I so I, I do think, you know, we're going to start to see the, the laws shift um, in a way to start addressing for, for some of these other groups that aren't just the actors and writers. Yeah. And, and this is coming from someone who um, I've cloned myself and have, like uh, <laughs> intentionally went in to have be scanned and my video presence cloned and my voice cloned. Uh, but I think one big difference where I sit versus these background actors is I know I own all the IP. And if I work with a brand or a partner that I'll establish a licensing deal and have complete control over how my likeness is used, at least for people I engage with, you know, it still can be scraped and, you know, deep faked online just because I exist online. Um, Um, But in my mind, I think one big miss, and it goes into the intentionality of, you know, the the greed of Netflix and these Hollywood execs of like, uh, you know, with all the fears that AI can open up other revenue streams, like if the actors you know, could license themselves and be five places versus one place and do like an in-person gig and get fair compensation for their likeness, you know, that changes the game as well. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how, how this will play out for sure. Yeah, I agree. And one, one thing I know we went to rant uh, the other day about waivers, because I, I went to an event earlier this year and 
I think I gave them a headache, but I didn't want to sign their release. Um, And I'm going to read it just because I think all waivers, which people sign so quickly, even like Black Tech Week where we met, you know, it's like by entering the building, you're giving away your rights to be filmed and photographed. And I just want to read this because this language, I think, is all going to be outdated and we all need to be aware of this. So um, I irrevocably grant to event hosts the non-exclusive right in perpetuity throughout the universe in all media, whether now known or hereafter devised to photograph, reproduce, and or otherwise use my name and voice from my participation in the event. Uh, I represent and warrant that consent by any other person, firm, corporation, or labor organization is not required to enable event hosts to use my name described herein and that such will not violate any rights of third parties parties. And I mean, this was like a retreat or whatever. And they were so, I loved, the, I loved the experience, but they were not the best organizers in the world. But like, like it, I gave them a hard time and they're like, we're just going to take photos for our, you know, social media. But I was like, what you're asking, like you could literally, what I'm signing over, you could literally clone my voice and likeness based on this language now. And I'm not comfortable because I know the technology. So uh, that's kind of my reaction. Would you um, agree that people should be careful about waivers and this types of language now? Yeah. Yes and no, right? <laughs> or am I over, I'm overreacting? <laughs> um, yes and no. And like, I think one of the things that going back to like the privacy side of things, right? Like, when you look at a privacy policy as a consumer, the privacy policy says everything, well, it should, right? To be legally compliant, it should say everything they're going to do with your data. And if you read that that document uh, and you go through it, you'll kind of be like, oh, that's that's a lot, right? They're going to do a lot with my data. Um, but most people don't read it. And so to your point, in terms of people just sign it, you know, most people don't read it. And what lawyers' position obviously is, is to represent their clients and you know, that language is positioning that client to do everything they may do with all of the photos and video that they take from the conference and utilize it in a manner that they maybe are thinking about right now, or that to your point, they're thinking about a hundred years from now. Right. Um, I, I, I think for folks like you, it's very rare that you have somebody who reads a waiver and you know understands pieces of it that are going to be potentially um, her, you know harmful or, or or inappropriate to to their senses. Um, from a practical standpoint, yeah, it's like, well, does that maybe challenge everyone to stop just using these template waivers, right? And and actually get the consent for the real thing that you're going to actually use these you know these images in the video for, right? To your point, like, well, if you're just going to take photos, then why doesn't I say that? And so, you know, I, I think it also is a challenge to some of these organizers who, and I, I, I'll tell you this right now, like there are a lot of people that look at lawyers as useless, right? Like, well, why do I need you for a simple waiver when I can just go get this thing offline? They then don't know. And I'm not saying that's what happened in this situation. Who knows that they accounts or if they didn't, but you know, if you don't know what you don't know, and so you pulled this waiver offline and you, you employ, you, you go to deploy it. And then it says all this stuff, right? That you don't know what it means. And you have somebody who's like, well, this is, this is inappropriate for the situation. Um, why don't, why isn't there just a, fo- a standard photo release uh, in this waiver rather than all this other stuff? Right. And uh, 
it, it's hard because like they they maybe didn't even realize that all that other stuff was in there. They, they didn't know what it meant. Um, or they just asked their lawyer and their lawyer went and drafted the most comprehensive, um, most detailed thing, right? So it's like it's it, it, everybody involved on the side of, you know, the organizers, I think just need to do a better job and thinking through like what's, you know, to your point, Helen, what's ethical, what's what's appropriate and what's what's actually called for in this moment? What are we actually trying to capture um, via this consent and via this document? If it's just the fact that you walked in this room and we want to post the videos and photos uh, on our website and on our social media, I'm sure you're okay with that. So just say that, you know, um, and I think that's where we're going to have to get. But I think the only way we get there is for more consumers to be like you, to be honest, right? To be informed, to be educated, uh, and to question certain things. And when you have these, when you have more people like you questioning the waiver, I'm sure they'll go back to their lawyers and say, Hey, by the way, this waiver is too intense. We need it to just allow us to do these things. And then, you know, allow for the sort of stripped down photo uh, video release form to be what actually exists rather than everything else that was put in there. I guess one takeaway for our listeners, read before you sign. <laughs> and, you know, I gave them a hard time, but you can negotiate. Like they ended up using language that I gave them that I was comfortable with. And I know that they didn't want to budge because it was a headache for them, but they ended up doing it. So it's like, you know, you do have a right to decide what you sign and don't sign as well. So, um, but definitely read, uh, re- read what, <laughs> anything before you sign it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it goes back to the old saying, right? Like, uh, all they can say is no. So why not ask, you know? Um, and, and I think that goes back to our conversation, um, about sort of influencers, artists, creatives, actors, um, you know, when they're going through their process, just ensuring that, uh, they ask, right. Ask for the revision, ask for the red line. Um, the worst they can say is no. And, uh, you know, when they say no, you got to be okay with either moving forward or walking away, but ask, right? Um, you, you'd be surprised how much uh, companies and, 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 you know, organizations give on when you do ask, like you just said. Yeah. And um, I think one thing that came to mind as you were saying that too, as far as like companies just be you know, stepping forward the most ethical way possible and most transparent. One recently that came up just, uh, I think it was last week, was Zoom had changed their terms of service where you couldn't opt out and it was for free and paid where basically just by using Zoom, you are allowing the company to use any of the information and data collected however it wanted and also to train uh, their AI machine learning tools, which they got a ton of backlash and I think they've since reversed. But I think that's kind of you know, um, maybe a bellwether sign for companies. Like you just can't default scrape everyone's uh, information to train your machines because users, I think, are kind of waking up that, uh, you know, how, how are their data be, how is their data being used? And especially within the creative space, um, you know, how writers and um, artworks are being used to train these machines. Yeah. In a case like that, it sounds like the operations team, the PR team and the legal team need to get in the same room together and, and make those decisions. Yeah, call call Derek. <laughs> um, well, before we close out the interview, um, and Derek, uh, you mentioned uh, starting a podcast. You're welcome to join this one. You could be our legal update. <laughs> 
anytime. Yeah. You're always welcome yeah. uh, to join uh, join the show. Um, I guess um, uh, you mentioned a couple practical tips for creatives on the show, um, but maybe we could summarize uh, and just reinforce those again uh, for all of our uh, listeners. Like, what are some things that they can walk away with um, from today's conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the number one thing is, is that you are the owner of, you know, your image, your likeness, uh, you are the owner of, you know, your, your creativity and, and the things you're creating. So when leveraging AI, you know, solutions, make sure you do it in a way that is thoughtful and you don't give away certain rights that you already own to these, to these AI solution companies. Uh, you don't, uh, compromise your art or, or your creativity by utilizing certain components from these AI solution companies in your final products. Uh, and if you do so, you do so informed that you understand the risks of that. And then more than anything, when, you know, you're dealing with these larger entities, larger companies, uh, you understand that you, you own your image, you own your likeness. And, uh, it is okay to, you know, review these contracts and, and ask questions and ask for revisions. Um, when it comes to the license that you're providing to your image and likeness. Uh, and, you know, the worst they can say is no, but it's important, to, I think, to review it, to understand it, uh, and to go into things with your eyes wide open. Uh, you know, legal counsel, I think, is the best way to, to go about that. But, I, you know, like I said, I understand that there are barriers to that and uh, making sure that you can try to find resources or do your best to ask questions when, you know, of these companies and things along those lines is a really important thing to do. Uh, and I think would, you know, save you heartache in the long run. Yeah. Thank you for, for recapping that. And I think one thing also that I just want to mention as well, because I know a lot of artists feel maybe disempowered because these big companies have already scraped the entire internet and um, there are some resources that exist now. I'll be sure to link it in the, the show notes. Um, and I know that they're on our website resources. Uh, but there's a one tool where you can look up to see if your artwork has trained a machine and then get on a database um, to say, I don't want my art to train these machine or the machine learning uh, generative tools. And then um, what's the other thing? Oh, and a OpenAI recently just released um, code that you can put on your website that says don't scrape. Although, you know, it's a little too little and a little too late in that regard because it's already scraped everything. Um, but I think we're going to be seeing more of those. So even if you feel like your artwork has already been scraped, um, you know, you're not, I don't want anyone to feel disempowered in light of these big corporations. And there are some tools out there to protect your works even right now. Well, Derek, it has been so wonderful having you on the show and sharing um, so much of your time and your insights and tips, even though it's not legal uh, advice that people should be taking, but tips to, to think about. Um, how, how can people get, uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, reach out to me on you know, Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, if you search my name on either of those places, I'll pop up. Uh, you can also look us up on, on our, my firm website. Um, and reach out to me. My email and, and office number and things like that are, are, are there. Uh, and, you know, I'm happy to be a resource and, and happy to connect with anybody that has uh, any questions or, or comments or any, any further discussions.
Well, thank you so much. It has been a an absolute pleasure and look looking forward to seeing how these cases unfold and keeping the conversation going. And we'll definitely have to uh, have you back on the show uh, to talk more all things AI and legal uh, down the line. So thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Look forward to coming back sometime. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're just getting started and would love your support. Subscribe to Creativity Squared on your preferred podcast platform and leave a review. It really helps. And I'd love to hear your feedback. What topics are you thinking about and want to dive into more? I invite you to visit creativitysquared.com to let me know. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter so you can easily stay on top of all the latest news at the intersection of AI and creativity. Because it's so important to support artists, 10% of all revenue Creativity Squared generates will go to ArtsWave, a nationally recognized nonprofit that supports over 100 arts organizations. Become a premium newsletter subscriber or leave a tip on the website to support this project and ArtsWave. And premium newsletter subscribers will receive NFTs of episode cover art and more extras to say thank you for helping bring my dream to life. And a big, big thank you to everyone who's offered their time, energy, and encouragement and support so far. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. This show is produced and made possible by the team at Play Audio Agency. Until next week, keep creating.